Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Blog Talk Radio friends and fans out there. I'm starting by telling you that you are listening to the winning book radio show, Off the Shelf. It is a beautiful Saturday. Before I say another word, I forgot all about this until I was listening to the news last night, and I'm glad I, I heard it. This weekend is Daylight Savings Times, and I would say most of the United States. So remember, those clocks go forward an hour uh, Saturday night or, or at least Sunday morning by the latest, or you might end up late to school or late to work. Remember, this weekend, daylight savings time, so push that clock forward an hour, and we'll get to enjoy some sunshine a little bit longer here in the U.S. But I want to welcome you guys to our Saturday, March the 12th uh, show, and I'm very excited, I was telling our guests, about today's show because it's it's a, a story that's a memoir based out of New York, and I, I love New York, so I'm excited, and I hope that each of you are too. I want to thank you all for joining us. Um, there is still time, particularly if you're from New York, to go out and tell your friends, your family, even if you live in New York and you, you listen to today's show, you may hear something that you're like, oh, or you may hear the author share something that about the city that you want to explore more or for the first time. But there's still time to connect to this morning's Off the Shelf, and you can do so by dialing 347-994-3490. Again, that's 347-994-3490, or you can just put in a search engine, Denise Turney, comma, Off the Shelf. The show will come right up. It's on, it should come up on the first page at the very top. And you can log, connect as well through the chat room. So please go, go go out and tell your friends, especially those who love New York City to tune in to today's show. I started doing this a couple of weeks ago, and some of the quotes, some of the some of our guests, they, they have struck them. And I hope with our listeners that you don't only listen to the quote, but you actually think about it and let it have a positive impact on your life. So the quote for today's show is, "There is no elevator to success; you have to take the stairs." There is no elevator to success. You have to take the stairs. And i got to tell you, through the, all the interviews I've done, not only here at Off the Shelf for going on 12 years, but I've interviewed some phenomenal uh, leaders, people who've worked on multi-billion dollar projects who lead their own firms. I haven't heard one of them say there's an elevator to success. We assume that other people had it easy. But they all say they took the stairs, too, and some of them say they took some pretty hard stairs. So I, I encourage you to, to go after your dreams, even if at times it seems hard. Just keep going. Now, next, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Every book isn't for everybody, but if you love mystery and you value relationships, not only intimate relationship between a man and a woman who turn out in love for over me to be soulmates. But there's also a dynamic relationship between these five male friends who meet in college. All their backgrounds are different. And also, a, particularly, it's the father-son relationship with uh, Raymond and his father in love for over me that I think will really, uh, you, when you see how that relationship changes both of them, you might think about your own relationships and how a very trying, challenging relationship, how it changed you, particularly if you decided at some point not to let it change you for the worse, which is what Raymond does, thanks to Brenda. If you if you if you value those types of things, I encourage you to go get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. It's an ebook and print format. And if you don't, it's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. If you don't see it on the shelves, just ask the clerk, say, I would like to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. And they can special order a copy and call you when it comes in because Love Pour Over Me is carried by the largest book distributors in the world. So please go get a copy and let me know how you enjoyed the book. And now for what you guys have been waiting for. I want to introduce our very special guest. I, I am really excited about our show uh, again, almost 12 years doing this, we've had every guest has been phenomenal. Our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Jimmy Newell. I found him doing a search 
online. It was just something about his book that really pulled at me. Now, Jimmy is a Bronx, Bronx, New York native, and he's the author of the nonfiction book, A Bronx Boy's Tale. You know, we 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 talk about a lot of fiction here on Off the Shelf, but this is a nonfiction book, A Bronx Boy's Tale. And you can check Jimmy out online at www.jimmynewell.com, and I'll spell that. It's J-I-M-M, like Mary, J-I-M-M-Y, N, like Nancy, N-E-W-E-L-L. So J-I-M-M-Y, N-E-W-E-L-L.com. This is what I love about online radios, I tell you guys. You can actually go over to his website and check out his website even as you listen to today's show. So welcome to Off the Shelf, Jimmy. Thank you. Great to be we here. Are so, we're excited. We are absolutely excited to have you here with us on Off the Shelf, and I'm I'm so glad that you were able to take time out of your busy schedule to join us here. Now, I love the background at your website, again, JimmyNewell.com. That baseball picture, it really makes you think New York. But can you can you tell us, for our listeners to go over there, is there a way, Jimmy, to click through the site? I tried to click through it. I said maybe I just don't know how I wanted to ask you. Is there a way to click through it to explore more of the website? And if not, how where can people go to find out more about you online? Well, the, the website is still being developed, quite honestly, but my Facebook page is uh, certainly uh, something they can explore. And also, I do write a blog, and uh, I write you know many short essays uh, on that. And if anybody's interested in reading some of those, you can go to my uh, Jim Newell, the blog post. Jim Newell, uh, the, blog post. the Newell, blog post. The Newell post. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, it's, there's a there should be a link to my Facebook page from my uh, uh, your website my website and uh, through the website uh, through the Facebook page you can also get to the blog. Okay, okay. So Facebook, yeah. the website, and the blog to our to our listeners. So Jimmy, right. what inspired you to write and share your story about your experiences growing up in the Bronx? Well, you know, it's funny. I I was uh, I've been writing for a while and just never getting to the point of finishing anything. And I ran across an old friend. I commute on the Long Island Railroad, and this guy comes up to me, and you know, we start connecting. We remember each other after many years. We went to college together, and he played for St. John's basketball, and he wrote a book about a college basketball player, and he asked me to read it. And as I'm reading it, I, you know, the light went on. You have to write about what you know. You know, I'm trying to create, you know, this new world. I'm going to write about the world I know. And I went back and I started thinking, and, you know, I, I still keep in touch with the, uh, I call them kids, we're all in our 60s, uh, all the, the guys that I grew up with and were friends for over 50 years. And wow. Yeah, oh, my that's God. Special. That's special. Yes. That's like so unheard I started, of. It is. It really is. And I started thinking about them. Uh, and we're all pretty special, if I say so myself. I have a friend who's a, uh, a dean at uh, NYU, another friend who's the president of a bank, another friend who's a Wall Street attorney, another one who's a mechanic, technician, and uh, there's doctors and lawyers, and all through this little network of friends that we've had all these years. And I thought, well, let me write about them. I I also like telling stories, uh, sometimes to the chagrin of my family and my friends. So I started writing my stories, and I incorporated the stories that I had as a friend growing up with these guys, with my family, with my Catholic schools and the church that we all belong to. And I realized that the Bronx was such a special place to grow up in. And I wanted people to know about that because there was an incident back in the 70s. It was during a World Series game. And the cameras focused on the field. But then all of a sudden it pans out and you see these big tenement buildings in the South Bronx burning. 
and it left such a terrible feeling to anybody who grew up in the Bronx that this was the image that the country would have of the Bronx. So I wanted to preserve the image of the Bronx that, that I knew, and that was my real motivation. Oh, my God, I think that's amazing. I worked with a guy. He said he and his college friends, once a year, they just said they were going to keep in touch, and they would get together once or twice a year and do something. They all went on to do very well, too. But I see it even with my son. He's in his early 20s. And I told him, as much as you play with your friends when you're a kid, that just starts to drift away as you get older, and a lot of people just don't keep in touch with, I mean, people who you thought you'd be friends with forever and keeping in touch with, that you spent hours with a day. It is truly amazing. And that's a point when I thought about that quote again, there's no elevator to success. You have to take the stairs. You have to put in the effort to make a relationship good, whether it's a friendship or whatever. It's not just going to happen all on its own. I think that's phenomenal that you and your friends, that is just, that is phenomenal. Did you, Jimmy, know? We all went through different stages in our lives when we're raising our children and trying to uh, improve our careers when we weren't able to get together as much. But now, you know, fortunately, time uh, is something we do have. And uh, there's about six of us that get together at least once a year at a friend's house, and we spend a long weekend together. And there's another few of us that live more locally in New York. And we try to get together three or four times a year for, you know, a holiday cheer or, you know, just uh, going to a ball game. I still go to New York Jet games with my good friend Mike. So, uh, you know, it, it, is, uh, it is a very special thing. And what's really nice about it, we really appreciate what we have. And we don't take it for granted. Wow. Uh, next, I wanted to ask you, okay, so did we, thank you for sharing what inspired you to share your story. Now, for some of our listeners, did you take any writing classes before you sat down and started penning your, your memoir or your autobiography, or did you just sit down and start writing your story? I I just sat down, quite honestly. Um, I have to credit my oldest son, Sean, because uh, a few years ago, he started writing the sports blog. And it got me to the idea of creating my blog. And the blog was a good thing because I wrote short pieces. I didn't have to sit down and knock out 25 pages. I just wrote short things. And I started writing these stories. And then my wife was trying to encourage me, and she saw something about self-publishing. And I wasn't quite sure how I felt about that. But I put a bunch of my stories together. I sent it to uh, an editor there, and they looked at it, and they said, you know, it looks good. You should continue. And that gave me the inspiration to put everything together. And I would get up early on a Saturday morning, go down to my uh, computer room, and I'd put music on. And that was that brought me back. It was the music to me is so evocative. It brings me right back into yes. the room. Yes. And I could see my friends and, and hear the conversations, and, and I just took it from there. Wow. I, what what time period for our listeners? New York City, I worked there for over a year, about a year and a half, when I lived in Pennsylvania. And I'm telling you, to our listeners, people come from all over the world you can hear so many different languages. That is a city, i, I got to tell you, it, it, it is in many ways like a melting pot. You hear so many different languages and the food and the, just the energy of New York. It would be so packed with, with not only uh, your commuters who live locally coming in and out of the city to work, or whether they live in New Jersey or coming in from Connecticut or Pennsylvania, but you've got so many tourists you can't even walk on the sidewalks. There's people walking, like, at the corner of the street just to get to the train station. I mean, New York, New York. So for those who see it today, and it's just just hustle, bustle, fun, every block there's something to do. There's, like, history on every block. What time period does a Bronx Boys Tale t- t- take place? And you t- talked about the music. What what time period does it take 
place in. And how different was that time, Jimmy, than if you go to New York today? Well, I'm going to. This is a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read the book. The book begins on November 22nd, 1963. Okay. And it, it, I tell the story of how, and this is this is a true story. I woke up that morning humming a song, and it was Big D, Little A, Double L, A, S. Now, don't ask me where I got that into my head, because I was listening to the New York rock and roll radio stations that were playing the Four Seasons and uh, Sam Cooke and, and, you know, all the great rock and roll songs of that era, and just also the beginning of the Beatles. So it starts off on the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. And it brings us through the 70s and to the day that my wife and I got married, September 19, 1976. And one of the things, I'm an old history teacher. I studied history in college and graduate school, and I taught history for several years. And one of the things I included were were the events that we witnessed. And so it, it brings you through the Kennedy assassination, the arrival of the Beatles, mm. the, uh, the explosive nature that they fought at a time when we were in the doldrums after the such a state of national depression after Kennedy's death. And then all of a sudden, these four guys from England come, and all of a sudden, we're yelling and screaming. And it it was a a remarkable thing to go through. And then, of course, you know, you have the other events of the 60s, the Vietnam War, uh, the terrible year of 1968 with the assassination of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy. And all of that, I'm growing up. I'm going to school, I'm going to college, and I'm I'm trying to find the love of my life. And I guess what what I was trying to do was to show the history and what we all were going through. Now, in terms of what New York was like, uh, I guess the the most exciting time for me was when I was just out of high school and starting college. That summer, I started working in the mailroom. So I was working in Manhattan, and... You would think I was, uh, well, I was going to say somebody's name that I won't say. You would think I was a billionaire walking uh, the streets of Manhattan. I loved it. I was able to go out. I was making messenger calls, delivering documents to different places. It it was such a great place to be. And uh, as we talked, too, about the, the Yankees and all, it was also a great time of excitement for football with the arrival of Joe Namath. So it has a little bit of everything for the sports fan, for the historian, and for people who want to know what growing up in New York was like. This is this is a real treat for, to our off-the-shelf listeners. And the book opens, as he says, November 1963, and he, he touches on uh, Jimmy Newell, the author of A Bronx Boy's Tale, on so many significant events, some that continue to unpack the U.S. even even today. I was going to ask you, 1963. So, you were a teenager. Uh, I was assuming when, when the book when yeah. the book opens. That's correct. And do you share experiences, uh, just your own experiences you had, or do you also share experiences that your family and friends had as well during this time period? I, I include. I, I spend a lot of time talking about my family because uh, they were an integral part, obviously, of my uh, education and coming to uh, you know maturity. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking about my mother. Uh, there's a there's a very good story about uh, my mother, and uh, it also takes place in 1963, and. Uh, you know, I'm an eighth grader now. I'm 13 years old. I don't want to be a mama's boy, you know. So we had a tradition of going down to see the the Rockefeller Christmas tree, St. Patrick's Cathedral during the Christmas time. And this one time, now I'm 13, and I have plans to go out with my friends and the girls. So I wasn't too keen about going with my mother. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, she knows what's going on. They even never pass anything through, you know, by her. And uh, so I get up that morning. We were supposed to go, and I, I make believe I'm not feeling well. And she was rolling her eyes. She knew exactly what was up. So anyhow, I realized I can't disappoint my mother. So we go down to Manhattan, and we have the best day ever. It's something I remember to this day. And, uh, you know, it was such a a poignant tale, I think. I think people will enjoy the sentimentality of uh, of that one event. But my brother, uh, my two brothers were very important in my growing up. Uh, you know, one of the things I... I I've given a few author talks, and I start off by saying it all started in apartment 6, 1261 Leland Avenue in the Bronx. And my mother and father raised a family of five children in a two-bedroom apartment that was really small. And, you know, we we talk, my brother and I talk about it today. We, we think my mother must have been a miracle worker, you know. But it, it has all the you know, the sentiment of uh, growing up in a, in a big family. Oh, <laughs> can you tell us, because a lot of our listeners, some of them may have gone to Catholic school and some may not, and especially uh, I think some, a lot of people's views of the church has changed over the years, but what was different about attending school at Blessed Sacrament? I have a friend who, who's, who's Catholic, and he's told me stories about how things were, and, oh, very different. He said, man, when if you misbehaved, uh, those nuns could, oh, you think they were going to tear the skin off your knuckles, hitting you with the well, rulers. Yeah. I was going to ask you, what was different about attending school at Blessed Sacrament when you were 13? Well, you know, at to the that? time, at, at the time, you know, you were always on the edge. You were, you were leery. You were worried about, uh, you know, because we... Uh, we all heard stories as we're coming up the ranks. You know, you start off in first grade and you hear about this nun or you hear about this teacher uh, from the older friends and my my older uh, family. Uh, so, you know, you didn't step out of line. And uh, there was none of that, you know, talking back to teachers and all. I mean, that, that just didn't occur. But for the most part, it was, you know, looking back, uh, it was an environment where you learned, and they they wanted order in the classroom. That was that was key. You know, you didn't you didn't talk out, you didn't yell and scream, you didn't you know. Uh, the teacher was always right, so you didn't have parents complaining that their son or daughter failed the test and blaming mm. it on the teacher. That sounds a little different today, uh, but it was. I'm not going to say that you didn't have a little fear. You really did. Uh, but it wasn't uh, anything, you know, it, there's been so many terrible stories about what went on. Uh, yes. And that was also yeah. part of my motivation because I, ha- I had good experience. I had really good friends who were priests and nuns, and they were terrific. And I worked with them. I, I also taught at Catholic school. But, of course, you know, there were some terrible, terrible stories that were told. But fortunately, at least my experience was that uh, it was, for the most part, a safe environment. You learned. You you know, you had to learn. And uh, the upper grades, I'm going to say the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, were really, uh, I thought they were fun. We had, I had... Three good nuns. They were the only nuns I had, actually. All the other teachers I had were lay teachers. But we had terrific nuns, and the priests that we had were terrific. So it was a great time. It was, uh, in fact, yes. No, go ahead. No, in fact, one of the stories I tell, one of the priests was transferred to another parish all the way upstate New York. And one of the other priests who remained organized a bus trip. And they took three busloads of kids up to see the priest who left. And you wouldn't do that if you didn't have fond feelings for them. I mean, you gave up mm-hmm. your own time on a Sunday in the summer to go up to see this priest. So he was pretty special to us. 
Now, is the is the L that you caught on Westchester Avenue, is it the same, when you say L, is it the same as a subway? And if not, how yes. is it different? Okay, so it's the same, yeah. it's the same as if, if somebody called it's the, the, the subway thing. now. We call it they, the L they, because it's the elevated portion of the subway. Okay. So the subway is, in that area of the Bronx, is above ground, and then as you get closer into Manhattan, it goes below ground. Ah, okay. Is baseball your favorite sport? Again, your website at Baseball Picture. Because you didn't really, I, I, when I was reading some of your ex, excerpts in your book at Amazon, uh, A Bronx Boy's Tale, you didn't really, it didn't sound like you made much fanfare about the Green Bay Packers playing the Detroit Lions. It was a game that took place around Thanksgiving. I was thinking, wow, the Packers, they were really, really huge. So I said, he might not be much of a football fan. Is baseball like your favorite sport? And wh- who, what's your favorite uh, team? Are you a Yankees fan? Who's your favorite Baseball team. Uh, I I am a, a a big Yankee fan, and in fact, I'm down in Florida now uh, with my wife and son, and uh, my son and I are going over to Tampa tomorrow for spring training. So I am wow. a very big Yankee. And but it, but it's funny during that time there was a transition in New York sports. The Yankees were on the way down, and the New York Jets, the football team, were just beginning. And I have a uh, a chapter, One Boy's Heroes, and I, I talk about how I was I was such a big Mickey Mantle fan, as everybody in the Bronx was at that time. And then I became such a huge fan of Joe Namath. And uh, it's 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 interesting. Uh, I, I was thinking about this. We have. Uh, you know, when when you graduate from school, you have these autograph books where you go around and get your friends to sign mm-hmm. or the teachers. Mm-hmm. Walk. But you fill it out, and it's a little profile. And I remember this distinctly, and I saw it recently. You know, my, my favorite sport was football at the time. My favorite athlete was Mickey Mantle, a, a baseball player. So I was all over the place. <laughs> but uh, yeah, right now I'm going to say uh, – you know, I'm a big Yankee fan, and I'm also a good uh, New York Jet fan. Oh man, the the the, the Yankees—they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, now the the uh, Jets. I send you my sympathy. <laughs> well, see, this is this is what I tell people. They say, "Oh, you're a Yankee fan. You're a front runner." I said, "Yes, but I have balance in my life because I'm also a New York Jet fan." <laughs> the Yankees. Now, now, uh, can you? <laughs> Can you please describe to us, because they still do a, a, a you can people still go by there today, right now during Christmas time. But for those listeners who may never have been to New York, and some who may never get there, can you help them little live a little vicariously? Uh, did, did you go to Macy's during Christmas, and what what can you sort of bring that experience to life? The, the Macy's experience during Christmas. And I also wanted to ask you, was it a bigger attraction back when you were growing up than it is now? I, I'm going to say yes, <clears throat> because uh, at the time when I, when I was growing up, Lionel Trains was the PlayStation of the day. That was the big toy. If you were uh, a, a young boy in the early 60s, you had a set of trains, either a Lionel or American Flyer. It didn't matter which make. Uh, and unlike PlayStation and all the video games, the department stores would put up these huge displays of trains. And you would go down there, and your your mother would leave you, and she'd go do the shopping, and you would just be right glued to the train layout. And, of course, they would have, you know, window displays and things of that sort. And we would make at least, you know, one trip during the season to see all of the sites of Manhattan. But we also had a Macy's locally, a few blocks from my house, and we would walk there. Uh, In those days, they would only be open late at night on Thursdays, so we would you know, take a trip. That was a big thrill, too, to go out after dinner 
uh, on school night, but you you know your parents would let you go and uh, you know check out the trains and the decorations, and it was really very special. And unlike today, it used to begin shortly after Thanksgiving. It didn't begin after Labor Day like it does today. So it, it made it even more precious to us because, you know, it, it was a short-lived experience. Mm-hmm. Now, I used to work on Fifth Avenue, and I had to ask you this question. What was – did you, you – you grew up in the Bronx. Did you get into Manhattan often because you were young? And I could imagine your parents might have said, no, you can't, you can't go down there by yourself. But being that I used to work on Fifth Avenue – can you tell me, tell us, what was what was that area like when you were growing up? You know, it, it's amazing. Uh, back in that time, and I'm going to say, you know, by the time I was 13 or 14, your parents would allow you to go into the city because it was a short subway ride. Uh, you knew you had to be home at a certain time before dinner or, you know, whatever. Uh, and there was just a different feel for the city. You know, you didn't have um, any worries about, you know, crime or violence or any of that stuff. Uh, So we would go down and uh, we would take trips, depending on, you know, the mood of the day. Uh, Certainly during the Christmas season, you'd go down to there. It was always magnificent. And one of the things that always struck me, you know, you could sit stand at a corner and you'd see all these people And all you could see was their heads going up and down as they're walking up and down Fifth Avenue. It was just an amazing sight. And, you know, growing up in that environment, you kind of took for granted that there were a lot of people. But I can imagine for people, you know, coming out from small towns in the Midwest, it had to be frightening to see all those people. Uh, It it was uh, just an amazing thing. And, you know, the the size of the buildings were, you know, just amazing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know. It's interesting that, you know, you mentioned the elevators. That was one of the, the thrill, too, going up in a, you know, uh, we used to go up to 30 Rock and go up to the uh, the top of their, uh, they had a little observation platform that you could go out and see the full range of the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was a great time. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, you talked about the melting pot. New York was always an attraction for the new immigrants, whoever they may be and wherever they may come from. And so with all this talk today, you know, it's really, it's hard for a lot of New Yorkers to come to grips with what people are saying, that, you know, this is our history. This is what people did. My parents were immigrants. My mother was an immigrant. So, you know, that's what happened. And this is where they came. They came to New York and they made a place for themselves and they shared the cultures of so many other uh, different immigrant groups. We we I mean there's so much I wanna ask you uh about your about the Bronx voice tale, but you said there wasn't much crime, so your parents would let you go from the Bronx into uh Manhattan by yourself. But weren't there like the gangs um, when I say gangs I'm talking about the mob they were bigger back then than they are today, right? I I guess so. You know, it's funny because I guess we were kind of insulated from that. Uh, okay. I think you know, the, that kind of uh, uh, gang type of activity was limited to uh, other gangs. They didn't. They didn't bother uh, you know thirteen or fourteen year olds or working class people. Uh, and in some neighborhoods. Uh, you know, you'll hear people tell stories that they kept the peace. They kept other criminals from coming into that area. So it, it's, um, you know, I, I guess back in the day there were there were certainly there was always crime. Let's not. I, I don't. I don't want to make it sound like there was no crime, but um, I guess parents didn't worry about the kinds of things that we have to worry about today. Mm-hmm. That certainly mm-hmm. is true. Now, who who is the Mick? Who is the Mick, Jimmy? Uh, the Mick is Mickey Mantle. Oh, that, okay. See, I, I I when I grew up, I I was a huge Cincinnati Reds fan, and I I grew up in more the seventies, eighties. But 
So I was wondering, okay, who is the ah? Okay, okay, okay. So he was your favorite. You already told us your favorite baseball player. He was. Yeah. Uh, yeah did you was. ever get to meet him? I want to ask you that. No, I never did, but I came close. My uh, my sister's uh, in-laws had a relative who lived in a section of New Jersey where Mickey Mantle rented a house. Ah. And we went there and spent the weekend. So I I took it upon myself to go to his house. And I'm banging on the door, banging on the door, <laughs> and nobody came. So, so I'm guessing he, was, he might have been out of town playing the uh, – the Red Sox or somebody, but he wasn't at the house. But I did try. Oh. <laughs> Can you tell and, us uh, what, what? No, go ahead. No. Uh, Can you tell us what was life like? I can't even imagine this. What was life like during the New York City transit strike? And you talked about all the people, and you were a kid then, and sometimes when we are children, things seemed blown up or exaggerated to us. And then we become adult, and we what might a hundred people might have looked like a thousand. And then we get older, and we say, "Now nah, it really wasn't, you know, what I what I as much as I thought it was." Was New York City? I mean, I, as I said at the start of the show to our listeners, especially people who haven't been to the city, there is so much foot traffic. I can remember one one of the first times that I went to New York, and I'm going back maybe ten years. You can get caught up in that swell of that just human foot traffic during a uh, rush hour, whether people are going to work or coming home, that you could get lost. You just get caught up in a just a slew of bodies going in one direction. Absolutely. I've never seen anything like that. So was New York like that, I mean, that sea of people when you were growing up? And then, if so, what was life like during the transit strike? Well, during the, the transit uh, strike of, uh, I guess it was 65 or so, it was actually 66, uh, I was in high school. So the only responsibility I had was getting back and forth to high school. And we depended on a bus to get to high school. So it was heaven because we didn't get to high school. We had the shortest <laughs> Christmas vacation that you could possibly have, but then we had two weeks added on. And after one week, your, everybody's mother was kicking us out the house. They said, walk, go. And it was a good walk. <laughs> and so you're on your way and you're walking, and people will stop and offer you a ride. And they say, are you going up to St. Helens? Yeah, 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 but leave us alone. We want to walk. We didn't want to get there too early. We, we didn't want to make it easy on ourselves. <laughs> so for us, it was heaven. You know, we, we had an extra vacation. Now, for my older siblings who were working, and for my father, it, it was it was tough. It was tough. They had to share rides with people, and the, you know the traffic on a good day is is terrible. And when mm-hmm. you're dealing with uh, you know a transit strike like that, it's an ordeal. But in, in talking about how you can get caught up in the swirls, uh, we had a frightening experience. Uh, my wife and I. Uh, we were at the uh, lighting of the Rockefeller Christmas tree. And we were within two feet of each other with another friend. And all of a sudden, the tree gets lit, and people start moving about. It took us one hour to find each other because we got oh pushed in different directions. It really, it really was frightening. So, yeah, you can. You have to... Uh, you have to be aware. And the one thing I would always advise people if you're, um, if you're new to coming to New York is look like you know where you're going. Because yes. that, that always, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's, even if you, even if you don't. <laughs> even if you don't. <laughs> Almost anywhere you go, if you go travel abroad to another country, people say learn at least be able to speak basic language. You you. That's a good way to get yourself set up for a scam to be taken advantage of. Not just in New York, exactly. but if you, if you travel to any other country, they're like, "Oh, she doesn't, she doesn't, she don't have a clue." <laughs> That's true. So you learn learn something about the language and the and the areas where you're going before before you visit. That, that is good advice. Now you just shared that one experience that you had 
going to the Rockefeller Center, and then you and your, your wife got separated. And you, back then they didn't have cell phones either, so you really were in a jam. But can you That's share correct. with us, Jimmy, uh, three, uh, two to three other memorable historic events that you cover in a Bronx Boys Tale? Well, you know, naturally the 60s were a, a, just a, a volatile time. And, you know, one of the things, <clears throat> I could see myself in my living room. I was doing a project for school. I was a senior in high school. It was April 1968. And, of course, you have the TV on. And then... Um, you know, you have this bulletin come in, breaking news that Dr. King was assassinated. Mm. And you just say, my God, where are we going? What, what's happening in this world? You know, it, mm. it, it's on. It's in the middle of a terrible war that, you know, people were so oh, my goodness. about one way or the other. Uh. And then, you know, two months later, not even, yeah, I guess two months later, um, my mother wakes me up for school, and I went to bed that night listening to my radio, and Bobby Kennedy had won oh, the California yeah. primary. And she wakes me up to say that Senator Kennedy was shot. And, and you're just like, my God, it's, you know, I, I'm wow. 18. Well, I'm not quite 18. I'm 17 years old, and you, you just knew. You felt like the world was coming to an end. It yeah. really was a very, very uh, disturbing time. It really, you know, just thinking about it now, uh, it, it was a terrible time. But one of the things that I learned in writing the book was we got through those times. And you mm. get through those times because you have your friends, your lifelong friends. You have your family and you have your community. And to people who are raising children today, it's easy to lose, you know, hope when you hear yes. you know, the terrible yeah. things that are going on today. Well, we're going to survive this. We're even going to survive this election. It's hard <laughs> to believe at this time, but I think we are. Yeah, you know, you know what? Um, it's funny. I was listening to you because I was thinking about the Vietnam War. Did you have? Did any of your friends, by the way, did they? That was just, oh, my God, people were moving to Canada or not. It was just awful. I think about people I've met was, who were was, in that war. They still struggle with the yeah. haunts. Did you have we, any friends uh, or anybody you knew who went? We had, uh, I, I had a couple of friends that have, that did go. Unfortunately, they, they were able to return. And uh, there was, I think there was one guy, one or two guys in the neighborhood who were not so fortunate. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it was it, it was a terrible time, and you know, uh, we all went to college, and of course, in those days, you were given a, a deferment for not going, which uh, seemed fair to us at the time. But I'm sure to those guys who didn't go to college, uh, you know, they bore the brunt, uh, the brunt of the war, mm-hmm. and it, it was a it was a terrible time. It really was. And I, I, I often thought because I've talked about this with the friends who did go, uh, you know, I never understood how the people who were against the war, which I, I'm going to be honest, I was against the war, but I didn't take it out on the soldiers who fought it. Right. Those did, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, these guys went to some place that we didn't want to go. They're not to blame, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's, you know, it, it was such a, <clears throat> a divisive issue. Yes, yeah, and because people are still impacted by it. And, you know, we always praise those who serve in the military. I know I was in the Navy. and um, But you you even see people in the military now, a lot of them homeless. And you're like, do, you, do, do we really, 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 really honor them or – is it more I mean, like it's, using it's them? Terrible. More like using them. Go fight this war so I can feel safe, and then when you get back, I'll just forget all about you. It's almost, it seems like, um, but you touched on a good point when you talked about 
some some of the events exciting, like the Beatles and different things in the '60s. First, you know, Elvis was hot, and then the Beatles come along, and it's like, whoa, what's going on? It was just there was just so much change, women's rights and civil rights, and the, 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 like the Kennedy and the King's assassination, and and just there was just, in the Vietnam War, there was just so much going on when you compare it to today because sometimes i i i today think oh my god what's going on you hear about these bombings and this is it's just like you think is the world gone mad (laughs) with the 60s if you had to look at the two and contrast them because the 60s there was a lot going on in the united states would you say absolutely it was a little nuttier back in the six. There was just so much change going on at the same time. And I, I think that's the uh, the point because, you know, today, you know, we're used to dealing with uh, crises of different types, whether it's economic or social or whatever. Uh, but back then, you know, you're dealing with a, a nation just out of World War II, growing up in the peaceful days of the post-war era, Eisenhower, happy days, you know, people just concentrating on getting the uh, the house, the car, and, and thinking about college for their children. Uh, it was a it was a bucolic time in America, but then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose, and uh, so that was that had to be a tremendous shock to people. I think today we're almost numb with the the things that have gone on. Not to say and that's that we unfortunate. Don't worry about that's a, yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate. Does, does, does someone, Jimmy, and we're interviewing Jimmy Newell to our off-the-shelf listeners. Jimmy Newell, he's the author of the book A Bronx Boy's Tale, and he shared some wonderful stories with us so far. I, I really encourage you to get the book A Bronx Boy's Tale. If you, but I had to ask you this. This is a question I wanted to ask you. Does someone have to be, or does a reader have to be from the Bronx to enjoy A Bronx Boy's Tale? You don't have to be from the Bronx, and I, and the reason why I say that is because I, I focus on friendship, family. And community. Now, for me, it was the Catholic Church. It's not going to be the Catholic Church for everybody else. It's not going to be Catholic schools. But for people, certainly of, of my generation, the, the baby boomers, they're going to be able to read their own life stories as I remind them with mine. They're going to remember their family. They're going to remember their heroes, their athletes. Maybe they went to Vietnam. Maybe they had the same experience of dealing with the assassinations and growing up and not knowing, you know, where are you? What, what are you going to do? You know, one, one of the things I, I, I focus on, too, is my own coming of age. Like, where, where, where was I, you know, as a kid? You know, I, it took me a while to really jumpstart my academic career. And then I realized, you know, how important it was and, you know, uh, I, one of the other events I, I touched upon was the Kent State shootings, which was uh, a very uh, uh, terrible uh, event uh, for the country. So I, I don't think you really need to be from the Bronx, but like everything else, it helps. Okay. <laughs> I like that. What, what has your family said when they – I can only imagine – they're in this story. What did your family, what are, What have they said about a Bronx boy's tale? Well, it, it's interesting. I'm the youngest of five. And there's a, I, I, in case they're listening, I don't want to oversell it, but there's a, a bit of an age gap between my siblings and I. So one of the first things my older sister said was, we grew up in two different families ah. because... Now, she was married when I was three years old. Oh, okay. So, and in many ways, I am closer in age to my nieces and nephews. Ah. So I really grew up with them. I feel like I'm their older brother in many ways. But they had stories of their own that I I never knew about because I wasn't born. 
so when they read my stories, many of them were new. You know, they didn't they didn't really uh, have that same experience. So they they were they kind of enjoyed it. The other thing that uh, I did enjoy is that you know, unfortunately, uh, my mother passed uh, away uh, before my children were born. My oldest was a baby. But so she never got to know them, and they didn't get to know her. And uh, my daughter said that by reading the book, she she felt Aww. like she got to know that. Yeah. Oh, that's so that, sweet. So that was special. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Oh my goodness. Now, oh, Jimmy, we only we're coming down to the last ten minutes. In what ways have you seen the Bronx change since you were coming up? When you well, when you, you get know, older. Yeah, as I indicated earlier, New York has always been the place where immigrants come. So if you went back to Leland Avenue today, you wouldn't see my family or people that I grew up with or, you know, the relatives of those family because we all aspired to the American dream. Get the house out in the suburbs and, you know, make your life better. You move from a small apartment to a house. So now you have another group of people, and they're from all over the world. They're from different countries in Africa. They're from some of the Caribbean islands, from West Asia. And it's interesting to see that dynamic. Uh, If you went down the block, it looks much the same, but the people are different. Ah. And that's a good thing. You know, that's, you know, we all went through that. This was our... uh, Court of call. This is where we wound up when our families emigrated from the various countries, whether from Italy, Ireland, or Germany, or Eastern, other places in Eastern Europe. And now those people are coming from other areas. So okay. it's, it's really nice to see. It's, it's actually, um, I think, you know, it, I think the Bronx is going to be a booming place because different areas of the Bronx, especially the ones that were the most devastated by uh, the decline, the urban blight, as we call it, uh, they are maybe 15 minutes from midtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a building boom there one day, and people will be living in the Bronx with water views and uh, very short commutes. It's just uh, a matter of... uh, It's starting already. Developers are already beginning... The process. So, oh, we uh, have a vi- we we have a visionary. I like the way you described that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Now, Jimmy, how much digging? How much digging for records? Talking to family, neighbors, and friends. Did you have to do to create a Bronx Boys Tales? Because you could have something in your memory, and then you ask somebody else, and they're like, you know, Jimmy, I didn't remember it that way. But how much digging did you have to do to con- to create the book? Well, I, you know, I, I talked a lot with my friends and with family. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the things I've been blessed or cursed with is a, a really strong memory. Now, I may not be able to tell you what I did a week ago, but I can tell you what I did 50 years ago. You know, I'm at wow. that stage in life. But I do. I, I remember the lot. And, you know, a lot of my friends were uh, concerned that I remembered too much. But I did put a lot of that stuff in the book. Oh, I, I have I, one I, friend who who always says, "Thank God we didn't have uh, iPhones or uh, YouTube or anything of that." Sort. Oh boy, oh boy, yeah. Now, where did the idea to create? This is something our other off-the-shelf listeners who have books that might really pique their interest. Where did the idea to create a playlist of songs to accompany a Bronx Boys Tale come from? Well, as I said earlier, I I would go downstairs in the morning and I would uh, go into my iTunes account and, and just play some music. And it really, it brought me back to that time period. It helped me, especially dealing with the, the music um, right before the Beatles arrived and certainly the Beatles and all through the 70s. And listening to those songs just you know, in you know, kept the memories vivid. And 
my generation grew up with tremendous music. I guess every generation feels that way. And I I wanted people to have an idea of say, well, let, let me let me listen to this music and I'll get the feel for this book. You know. Also, I have to say, I have visions of this becoming a screenplay and a uh, and a movie. I, oh, and I hope I it go. does. I would be tickled pink because then I could say, I interviewed him. I interviewed, that's right. I interviewed that author. In what ways? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. In what ways did writing a Bronx Boys tale, you lived the experiences many years go by, and now you're reliving them. In what ways did writing a Bronx Boys tale change you as a man? Well, I guess, you know, I guess it's natural for many of us in this country. We're consumer-oriented, and we're always focusing on what we don't have. You know, we're, we want we want a house, and then when we have the house, we want a bigger house, or we want a newer car, or we want the newest iPhone, or, you know, whatever the, the consumer item is that we want. And I guess... I really learned to appreciate what I had because mm. one of the things that uh, I look back, you know, as I mentioned, we lived in this very small apartment in the Bronx, but we never felt deprived. And mm. in one of the author talks I gave, I was describing how, you know, when I was born, there were five of us, and then, uh, you know, when I was two, my brother joined the Marines, so that freed up a bed. So I was out of the crib and into a bed now. And then when he came back from the Marines, my sister uh, got married. And so, you know, it was a zero-sum loss. You know, we, we, we were able to keep the bed situation going. I said, but for those three or four years before my brother got married, you didn't know where you were going to sleep or with whom. And someone remarked, ah. she said, oh, that, that must have been terrible. I said, terrible? It was fantastic. I said, I didn't, never felt deprived. I felt rich. You know? Wow. I was, I was my family, you know? And I had a set of trains. I had a football. I had a softball and a mitt and a baseball bat. What more could you want? Oh. And uh, it, it really, you know, you, you start to look at what was really important. And, of course, all the things that are really important have nothing to do with consumer items. It has to do with your family, with the friends, and your community. Yes. Do you have plans to write another book, and do you see yourself ever writing a novel? I, I actually had started out writing a novel, but it didn't really, as I indicated, it didn't get me anywhere. Uh, there's two books that uh, I'm working on. One is just a collection of my essays that I wrote on the blog, but the other one that is, I think it's going to be an important book. I'm writing it with my wife. And oh. we have different different titles, and uh, I'll go into that. Uh, in 2000, I was diagnosed with a chronic form of leukemia. And in 2010, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh. And we've gone to Cancer Survivor Days, and they're very inspirational and very, you know, they really make you feel good. And we're both feeling well. We're both doing well. And, you know, we're here on vacation. We're living a good life. And so we had the idea of writing what it was like to have, you know, married with cancer, you know, both of us. And what, you know, trying to get our children to share their feelings and what they went through and how we dealt with work and how we dealt with each other. And, um you know, I've learned so much from my wife and her experience, uh, and she has some really good ideas. So we're 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 putting that together. We're in the uh, we've written some, and we have other things outlined. But hopefully, that's going to you know be done. I'm, I'm hoping within the next year. Wow, you you, I have so enjoyed having we. We've had Jimmy Newell here on, and I, you can hear it in his accent, a New Yorker here on Off the Shelf with us this morning. What a treat, what a treat. Jimmy Newell, he's a Bronx native, and he's the author of the nonfiction book, A Bronx Boy's Tale, which opens 
in November 1963, and anybody who grew up in that time knows just how much was going on in the country back then. But it's interesting to hear him say how family and your friends, they, they, it's really, that's what makes life good. So we want to encourage you to get a copy of A Bronx Boy's Tale, and he and his wife are both working on a story together, which we look forward to seeing. And and one of the reviewers to our off-the-shelf listeners said that Jimmy Newell is a natural writer. I was asking him earlier if he had taken any writing courses. One viewer said he's a, he's a natural, like a natural storyteller. And you could hear that during his interview. So I encourage you to get a copy of A Bronx Boy's Tale. And I also encourage you, come back next Saturday, 11 a.m. Remember, set your, set your, set your calendar for Saturdays, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, tune in to Off the Shelf, where we will continue to bring you great guests, whether they're writers, editors, literary agents, publishers, business owners, marketers, but people who have something to do with books and the world of the wonderful world of literature. Thank you, Jimmy. And please go support him, JimmyNewell.com, the author of A Bronx Boy's Tale. And please pick up a copy of my new book, Love for Over Me. Remember, you are awesome. You're incredible. You're amazing. Go create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back next Saturday. Jimmy, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Thank you very much.